Today's special episode is by Aaron Kessel, a PhD candidate at Yale University's French department. He is currently preparing a dissertation examining the marvelous in medieval Arthurian literature, focusing on the mythical sorcerer Merlin and his representation in late 12th and early 13th century French romance. His interests also incorporate a broad spectrum of medieval language and literature, including, but not limited to, insular Latin sources for Arthurian lore, such as Joffrey of Monmouth, and Middle Welsh romance. In this episode, he will talk about King Arthur as a cross-channel literary figure. The legends of Arthur are not limited to England, and much of the iconic myths about this figure wouldn't exist if it weren't for French storytellers. With that, I will give it over to Aaron to tell us what France contributed to the legends of King Arthur. Today, I want to talk to you about an important element of French identity, King Arthur. That's right, that Arthur, king of the Britons, the iconic English king who drew the sword from the stone and wielded Excalibur in the quest for the Holy Grail. Except, of course, for the part where he never actually personally quested for the Grail, just the better part of his court. As you probably well know, Arthur, as a literary figure, has survived well into modernity, proving to be a resilient and ever-popular fixture of romantic and popular fiction, from Tennyson to the once-and-future king and the mists of Avalon. Cinema likewise cherishes Arthur. Numerous movies and televised series have been made, including Camelot starring Richard Harris, The First Night starring Sean Connery and Richard Gere, Merlin, TV series, Netflix Cursed, 2004's King Arthur starring Clive Owen, and of course the unforgettable Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Those true connoisseurs of French popular culture among you will invariably be familiar with Alexandre Astier's long-running Camelot TV series. If you are anything like me, your first experience with Arthur might have been watching Disney's Sword in the Stone while you were still a child. I don't want to talk about these reinterpretations and reimaginings of Arthur. Rather, I want to go back to some of the first vernacular treatments of Arthur. Ironically enough, Arthur, who for many today is the very image of English nobility and chivalry, for all intents and purposes probably hated the English. If he did exist, he would have been a petty British warlord living sometime in the 5th or 6th centuries, and who fought against the English and Saxon invaders who had recently gained a foothold on the eastern part of the island. For anybody living in the United Kingdom, this may not be hard to understand once you grasp the context. But for many who ignore the UK's long history of constructing ethnic identity, it is hard to imagine. Now you may be asking, what exactly does Arthur have to do with France? We will get there soon enough. And no, I'm not going to talk any more about the French TV series. But I believe that the modern popularity of Arthur can help us understand how Arthur went from fighting with the Saxons and the Angles to being loved by them. And it all starts with him first being exported to France, of all places. Where does Arthur start? I ask this question rhetorically, of course. But it's still really hard, I would say even impossible, to give a really solid answer to this question. Historians have been hotly debating this issue for some time. Some, for the most part generally earlier scholars, that Arthur does have some foundation in history. Many, however, now tend to favor a purely popular or mythical origin for Arthur. Though Arthur does appear in some historical documents, namely the Historia Britonum and the Annales Cambriae, he is a relatively late addition to the historical narrative. He is excluded from older and generally more authoritative 
though still occasionally problematic texts, such as Gildas's De Excidio Britanniae and the Venerable Bede's Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum. Arthur's late arrival to history is compounded by his tremendously popular mythical dimension. Medieval Welsh literature is rife with references to Arthur, emphasizing his heroic and supernatural qualities. Many of these texts, such as the Pagur av Porthaur and the Predia Nuvin, clearly portray Arthur as a heroic standard who fought over supernatural spoils with superhuman power. These texts raise interesting questions. Scholars such as David M. Dunville place the composition of the body of the Historia Britonum, the first Latin language source for Arthur, in Wales in the first half of the 9th century, though it was subject to numerous subsequent recensions. This, in practice, makes the Historia Britonum technically older than the Welsh language texts. The source of the Pagur of Apurthaur is the Black Book of Carmarthen, a codex dated to the mid-13th century. The source of the Predia Nuvin is the Book of Taliesin, which dates from the first half of the 14th century, significantly later than the composition of the Historia Britonum and the Annales Cambriae, which is believed to probably derive its Arthurian material from the same Historia Britonum. The fact that the Latin sources predate the Welsh material is not particularly surprising. Though Welsh is one of the indigenous Britonic languages of the British Isles, Vernacular literature developed quite late in the Middle Ages in numerous languages. Though many vernaculars are attested in marginal notation, the International Lingua Franca, the language in which reading and composition were studied, was evidently Latin. Take French as an example. Though the Oaths of Strasbourg, which dates from the mid-9th century, is considered one of the earliest monuments of the French language, it wasn't until the mid-11th century, with the life of St. Alexis, that lengthy French-language literary texts began to appear. This was shortly followed by the Song of Roland, which dates from either the late 11th or early 12th century, and which was the first French-language text to deal with primarily secular and chivalric matter. Furthermore, it is likely that this text represents the evolution of popular oral traditions surrounding Charlemagne and his court, a subject matter which dates from before the Oaths of Strasbourg, which were struck up between two of Charlemagne's grandchildren. There have been numerous arguments for dating Welsh-language texts, such as Pagur of Apurthaur, and the Praetia Nuvin prior to the respective 13th and 14th century compilations. The earliest date proposed for the Pagur of Apurthaur is the 10th century. However, as these texts are often dated upon purely linguistic grounds, the current consensus is that most of these texts cannot be dated in their current forms to prior to the 12th century. However, with the evolution of the Song of Roland as an analog, I do think that these texts can be indicative of an already long-standing and robust mythological identity. Consequently, it seems fairly probable that as historical Arthur emerged, he already possessed a well-developed mythological persona. This can be seen in the Historia Britonum, which in at least its subsequent iterations includes a collection of marvels, including a magical cairn or pile of stones, topped off with a footprint made by Arthur's dog in the hunt for Truith, a mystical giant wild boar. This hunt comes down to us in its most intact form in the Welsh romance Kiluch Ag Olwen. This text was recorded in the Red Book of Hergest and the White Book of Radech. So the oldest redaction we possess of the text dates from the mid-14th century. The Kilukako Olwen has been dated, once again by linguistic means, to the 11th century. But this should be taken with a grain of salt, as more conservative estimates place it likewise in the 12th century. The text does appear, though, to be a heavily redacted version of some earlier mythical story, or perhaps a loose collection of potentially older Britonic myths. Furthermore, it contains a distinctly supernatural Arthur, whose court is peopled with superhuman heroes, potentially hemorrhized gods by some accounts, who are given numerous supernatural quests to perform in the course of the story. Taking all these factors into consideration, it seems likely that even as Arthur was tentatively entering history, he already appeared to have a well-established Britonic mythical identity. 
Thomas Green proposed the conundrum perhaps best when he set himself the task of determining whether Arthur was a mythologized historical figure or a historicized mythological figure. The near simultaneous emergence of these respective identities compounded by the questionable historical quality of the Historia Britonum and Arthur's absence from earlier historical records has led to a consensus among most contemporary historians, including Green, that Arthur was probably, by all accounts, a purely mythical construct. This hasn't stopped some historians, such as French scholar Alain Gautier, from doubling down and proposing his possible biographie d'un possible Arthur, a tantalizing yet purely hypothetical biography for what he feels to be the most likely historical origin for Arthur. Gautier latches on to key events from Arthur's historical narrative, namely the battles at Mount Baden and Camlin, as tools for substantiating his existence. In either case, barring the emergence of more primary material, which seems unlikely, all who tackle the issue must invariably confess at least a nominal agnosticism in the matter. Michelle Sizgilnik, in her assessment of the situation, points to a rather funny problem. There's either too much or too little material for serious and skeptical historians to sift through in order for them to arrive at any serious conclusions. At once, Arthur possesses very little historical documentation and is the subject of a rich and copious medieval fictional vernacular literature, a surprising quantity of which is written in Old French. So, you may be asking, that is all well and fine, but how did Arthur get from Latin and Welsh-speaking Britain to France? And moreover, why did he ever have to be re-imported to Britain? Wouldn't the English have logically had a privileged role in preserving Arthurian literature given their proximity to Wales? To be sure, England does have its own Arthurian tradition, which it can serve perhaps to some degree independently of French Arthurian literature, but it was soon clearly infected and frankly dominated by the same. To explain, we first need to see the big names behind French Arthurian romance. There is some evidence that Arthur enjoyed some popularity outside of the British Isles. Critics often cite the Otranto Mosaic, an image of Arthur's fight with the Cathpali, a non-Galfradian story of Arthur's battle with a supernatural cat-like creature. This image was incorporated in a mid-12th century cathedral in Italy. Inspiration for it probably came with the Normans to Italy after their conquest of England in the 11th century. British literary culture appeared to experience some sort of vogue in the 12th century. It was in the late 12th century when, for example, Marie de France produced a collection of translated lays. The lay is a Britonic form of narrative poetry. Marie's collection even included both an Arthurian lay and a lay derived from the Tristan et Isolde tradition, which, though perhaps initially distinct, subsequently became conflated with the Arthurian world. The rise in the popularity of Britonic culture on the continent goes hand in hand with the composition of Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia Regum Britanniae. Geoffrey's Historia was really a jumping-off point for the Arthurian tradition. Though he calls his text a history and wrote it in Latin, medieval international language erudition, the text is anything but historical. It did, however, make for great reading and was subsequently recopied and exported from the British Isles. Numerous manuscript editions of this text survived, and it was quickly translated into Le Roman de Bruy, a vernacular verse romance by Wass in the course of the 12th century. Though many Welsh texts, such as the Pagur Ava Porthaur and the Kilukag Olwen, incorporate non-Galfradian elements, like the Cath Palig in Otranto, they were probably only recorded in writing around or after the time Geoffrey of Monmouth turned Arthur into an international sensation. It is impossible to say for certain, however, if these events are merely correlated or if there is some causal link between the two. Regardless, the rising popularity of Arthur would soon lead to an explosion of Arthurian literature on the continent. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? 
This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. In the last half of the 12th century, when Marie de France began working on her own Britannic lays, the Champenois author, Chrétien de Troyes, launched a very successful literary career. He wrote numerous verse romances that have survived into modernity. These texts include five Arthurian romances, Eric Aenid, Cligès, Le Chevalier de la Charrette, Le Chevalier au Lyon, and Le Comte du Graal. Chrétien marks an important step in the evolution of Arthurian literature. Chrétien is really the first to introduce Arthur to the genre of medieval romance. Marie purports that her lays are translations of lyrical Breton poems. However, they essentially became short stories in octosyllabic French verse with a rime plat rhyme scheme, a simple pattern of couplets. In a structural sense, they resemble Chrétien's romances, save for the fact that Chrétien's romances were much longer. L'Enval, Marie's Arthurian lay, is 646 verses long, whereas Chrétien's Le Chevalier de la Charrette is 7,112 verses long. While most of Marie's lays are not Arthurian, Chrétien's romances, on the other hand, all use Arthur and his court as a backdrop. Moreover, Chrétien is the first to introduce the legendary grail into the Arthurian genre. Unfortunately, it appears that Chrétien never finished his Perceval. Though several continuations were proposed by various authors, it is supposed that Chrétien may have died before being able to provide his own conclusion. Chrétien's Perceval, ou Condural, presents us with a strange image of the grail. Though the character Perceval does experience a certain amount of spiritual growth in the surviving text, the grail remains surprisingly low-key. Appearing in a fairly desacralized context of a banquet with Perceval's host, the grail serves more as a tool for testing Perceval, a test that initially, at least, he fails. In this context, the grail does have some association with the Eucharist, which it would come later to represent in a much more direct sense. However, in the Perceval, it is merely the elaborate dish within which the Eucharist is transported. It was Robert de Bourbon who would soon after give the grail the meaning that is so familiar to us today. It was sometime between the end of the 12th and beginning of the 13th century that Robert de Bourbon, who probably resided in Bourgogne, France, or was at least originally from there, took an interest in Arthurian literature and wrote a series of poetic romances. All we have today are his Le Roman de l'Histoire du Graal, also known as the Joseph d'Arimati, and a small selection of his Roman de Merlin. It is in L'Histoire du Graal where the Grail is used to collect the crucified Christ's blood. Shortly after Robert de Bourbon wrote his verse romances, the genre of verse romance began to go out of style and was replaced by vernacular prose romance. As a result, prose adaptations of Robert de Bourbon's L'Histoire du Graal and his Roman de Merlin were produced in relatively short order. It is also possible that these texts were part of a trilogy, including a final Perceval branch. However, it is unclear if Robert de Bourbon ever really intended to produce a Perceval text, though some propose that the Didot Perceval fits the ticket. The prose adaptations of his romance were nevertheless quite positively attributed to him. At the same time, the great prose Vulgate cycle began to appear. This collection centered around Lancelot, a character drawn from Chrétien de Troyes' Chevalier de la Charrette, who recounts Lancelot's arrival to Arthur's court, his affair with Guinevere, the quest for the Holy Grail, and the subsequent destruction of Arthur's kingdom in the final episode, La Mort le Roi Arthur. Though King Arthur's death and the loss of his kingdom in civil war marked the end of Arthur, Arthurian literature remained a fairly open canon, still admitting new texts that frequently contradicted or competed with alternative versions. Many alternative versions of the Arthurian universe cropped up. Galahad replaced Percival as the main protagonist of the Grail Quest, Lancelot replaced Gawain as Arthur's best knight, and so on and so forth. 
The prose Merlin and the Stois du Graal became annexed to the Vulgate cycle, and there was even a sort of prologue written to help transition from Arthur's coronation at the end of the prose Merlin to Lancelot's birth at the beginning of the prose Roman de Lancelot, called Le Livre d'Arthus. But this text soon had competition in the form of the post-Vulgate Suite du Roman de Merlin, a much longer alternative version of Arthur's early triumphs, and a text which also expanded retroactively upon numerous elements of the Vulgate cycle. Setting the scene for the Vulgate Caste de Sangal, the popularity of these texts led to numerous Arthurian anthologies, which turned up in luxury illuminated manuscripts from the 13th and 14th centuries, many of which can be found in the BNF or frequently in digital format through the Gallica, the BNF's digital archive. After spending a great deal of time developing on the continent, Arthurian literature was ready to be reimported anew to the British Isles. It is true that Arthur probably never really left Britain. Britannic populations, including both the Welsh and the Breton speakers of Little Brittany, were reported by their medieval contemporaries to have long preserved their belief in Arthur. Furthermore, as French was the principal language of the Angevin dynasty of 12th and 13th century England, Arthurian literature had surely already been consumed among the Norman insular elites. Catherine de Troyes and Marie de France even had connections to the Anglo-Norman aristocracy. Catherine likely received patronage from Marie de Champagne, the daughter of Louis VII of France and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Marie de France, in turn, may have had connections to the Plantagenet court. Furthermore, Marie wrote in a distinctly Anglo-Norman dialect and included the English translations of several words in her lays. Evidently, the channel was a fairly permeable barrier. As further evidence, numerous texts of the Welsh Mabinogi, namely Yarla Safanon, ne Owen, Ferdir Vab Efraug, and Gerin Vab Erwin, ne Garant Ag Enid, complicate the narrative of the insular relationship with continental Arthurian literature. All three of these texts bear a strong resemblance to some of Chrétien's French verse romances, Yvain, Perceval, and Eric Enid, respectively. It is hard to say whether these texts were translated or not from French, or if they merely share a common source text. They do seem to have some clear French influence and use numerous French loanwords. Yet at the same time, they seem to have some uniquely Welsh elements that may be derived from some purely insular source. French and Welsh may have played a key role in piquing an insular interest in Arthurian literature. There is evidence for a growing interest in Arthurian literature among English speakers. There are a handful of texts from the 14th century that testify to this, such as Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the English-language Mordartria texts, and even Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Though by this time, English as a language had already been heavily influenced by a long history of French domination, Chaucer himself was for all intents and purposes a notable Francophile. He even went so far as to produce a partial translation of the Roman de la Rose, a monument of medieval French literature, and perhaps one of the more popular French romances which has survived into modernity in literally hundreds of manuscripts. Chaucer wrote his own Arthurian short story, The Wife of Bath's Tale, part of this Canterbury tale sometime in the late 14th century. It was likewise in the late 14th century that the ever-popular Sir Gawain and the Green Knight was composed. This text was part of a northern revival of a more traditional Anglo-Saxon alliterative verse. It was also one of the better-known examples of the beheading game, a tradition that can be traced back to older Irish sources, but which could just as easily have found its way into English literature via French or Latin sources. In addition to The Wife of Bath's Tale and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, two English-language adaptations of the Mort Arthur, The Death of King Arthur, were composed sometime between the late 14th and early 15th centuries. These two texts raise important questions as they differ radically in both form and content. In Stanzaic Mort Arthur, quite probably the early of the two, is a condensed version of the French tradition, drawing heavily upon the narrative of the French Vulgate cycle. The alliterative Mort Arthur, however, not only employs the traditional Anglo-Saxon verse of Sir Gawain and Green Knight, but more importantly, it portrays Arthur in a very different light from the French-inspired Tanzaic poem. 
Gon is the passive cuckold king whose kingdom is menaced by Lancelot and Guinevere's antics. Arthur is portrayed rather as a powerful warrior king who succumbs to his wounds after his battle with the traitor Mordred. These English language texts were only preliminary indicators of a coming literary monument. Throughout the 12th and 13th centuries, Arthurian romance was booming in France, and in a certain sense it never really disappeared. It did, however, lose momentum. In the late 13th century, Prophecies of Merlin enjoyed a fairly decent distribution, both as a romance and as a collection of prophetic texts open to political and popular interpretation. Even into the 14th century, we still see texts such as Perseforest appear. Perseforest was a sort of late prequel to the Vulgate cycle, and had begun to incorporate lyrical interludes into the body of the prose text. The development of Renaissance satire took over the medieval aristocratic genre, turning it into a subject of no small ridicule. François Rabelais, whose Gargantua and Pantagruel books played with the Arthurian genre, was a particularly prominent French satirist. But perhaps the final nail in the Arthurian coffin was none other than the ingenioso Hilago himself, Cervantes's Don Quixote. This text's harsh realism and Renaissance humanism beautifully questioned every element of Arthurian literature. Subsequently, Arthur would remain a backward fixture of the medieval period until his revival by the Romanticists of the 19th century, who were attracted to the ornate Gothic novels of medieval Europe. Well before the Quixote, about the time the French appeared to be losing their interest in Arthur, the English jumped on the bandwagon. It was Sir Thomas Mallory, an English knight who led a rather colorful life, and who in the later half of the 15th century, probably while incarcerated, began a massive undertaking, the translation and synchronization of a complete Arthurian saga in English. Calling upon pre-existing texts from the already extant English body of Arthurian texts, such as the stanzaic Mortarthur, Mallory translated, assembled, and correlated French texts from the Vulgate and post-Vulgate cycles, in addition to the whole of the prose Tristan, which had already become firmly installed within the Arthurian literary universe. Mallory told the whole story of Arthur, starting with the Roman de Merlin, from the birth of Merlin all the way up to the death of Lancelot and Guinevere at the end of Le Mort Loi Arthur. Though Mallory is credited for producing the initial manuscript edition of the text, some potential considerable amount of editing took place when the text was finally printed in the last quarter of the 15th century by William Caxton under the title The Mort d'Arthur, or The Whole Book of King Arthur and His Noble Knights of the Round Table. This text brought a large and rich Arthurian tradition into English imagination. Though the Renaissance saw a sharp decline in interest in Arthur, Arthur lived on, exercising influence upon many English authors, reappearing, for example, in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. However, it is with the Romanticists of the 19th century that Arthur, and Mallory more precisely, are resurrected. Authors such as Sir Walter Scott and Alfred Lord Tennyson took a keen interest in the figures of chivalric knighthood. It may be perhaps oversimplified and somewhat cheeky to suggest, but this is perhaps the reason for which Arthurian characters are frequently represented with strong English accents instead of Welsh ones, or for that matter, even American or Australian ones. Arthur, as a figure, has jumped across ethnic and linguistic boundaries on numerous occasions. Though initially British, in the sense that, had he existed, he would have probably spoken some early British language more akin to Welsh, Cornish, and Breton than to a Godelic language like Scottish, or to a Germanic language like English. His story and the stories of his court were enjoyed in numerous European languages. Welsh, Latin, French, Occitan, Norse, German, Italian, Spanish, and English are a few that come to mind. The ethnic and political borders of medieval Europe were extremely porous. Popular literature, which helped to construct the chivalric identity of the Middle Ages, was widely consumed and in all due likelihood widely enjoyed. If I were to draw any conclusions from this narrative, it is this. Arthur is neither the property of the English, nor necessarily of the Welsh. He is as much a product of French literature as he is of Spanish and Latin literature. The legend of Arthur grew out of an increasingly interconnected Europe, and in a sense, 
he has transcended both language and time. For this reason, I don't believe Arthur really belongs to any single group or country in particular. Arthur belongs to everybody. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.